Well, it is a privilege once again to be up here and opening the book of Philippians with you. That is our uh, book this evening, Philippians. Uh, We are in chapter 1, verses uh, 18 through 26. Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 to 26. I would invite you to turn there. I am inviting you, in fact, to turn there. Um, but uh, before I read the text, before we pray, I want to I wanna break all sermon protocol and ask you a question and have you raise your hands. I know, I know, I'm sorry in advance, but how many of you, by show of hands, remember a number of years ago where the word or the phrase, the motto, YOLO, was everywhere? Who remembers that? Just about everybody. Okay, YOLO stood for you only live once. It was a motto that seemed to be everywhere, what, like 10 years ago? And that was a really annoying time in life. Uh, Because it seemed like everybody used that to justify whatever stupid thing they wanted to do, didn't they? You know, why'd you jump off that bridge? YOLO! Why did you uh, splurge on that car you can't afford? YOLO. Why'd you give up your job to sell hand-carved unicorns online? YOLO, of course. Whatever stupid thing someone wanted to do, YOLO seemed to be the justification. YOLO was an example of a motto gone awry. Um, But mottos aren't necessarily bad. Sometimes it's useful to have a pithy statement, a short statement summarizing how you you view the world or live your life. Sometimes those are useful things. Um, They can be instructive to others. You can use them to keep you focused, to help guide decision-making. Mottos aren't bad. You just have to pick the right one. And in our passage tonight, specifically in verse 21, I am going to suggest that we have the closest thing in the Bible to the Apostle Paul's personal motto, and that is to live as Christ and to die as gain. I think these words are a rather perfect summary of how Paul aspired to live his life, and they are probably the best motto that anyone could ever adopt. These are the words that we should aspire to have our loved ones write on our tombstones and in our obituaries. And these are the words that we are principally going to reflect on tonight in the time that we have. And to do them justice... There are three things that we need to do. It's a really simple sermon outline, three parts. First and foremost, I want to talk about context or, or, or why Paul says these words, why he says to live as Christ and die as gain in our passage. And having established the why, we'll move on to the what, the meaning. What does it actually mean to say to live as Christ and to die as gain? And then, of course, having seen that and hopefully um, wanting this to characterize our lives as well, we'll conclude with application or the how. How do we make this true of ourselves? So context, meaning, application, or you could think of it as why, what, and how, however you want to look at it. That's the breakdown for this evening. And in a nutshell, the main point is pretty simple. To live as Christ and to die as gain really simply means to be so in love with Jesus that every aspect of our life is about him, even to the point where we would happily give up everything in our lives if it means going and being with him. You don't have to write that down. I'll repeat it several times a night, I promise. But that's essentially what we're going to see as we go through this passage and as we reflect on these words. Um, But before we do that, let's pray, and then we'll read the text, and we'll jump into things. Lord, 
Thank you for, again, this privilege tonight to be able to open up your word. We thank you, Lord, that there is ample cause to be able to say that to live is Christ and to die is gain. I pray that you would open up hearts and minds tonight and open up my mouth, Lord, to speak wisely and accurately. I pray these truths would fall on fertile soil so that our beloved would be glorified. As in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so our text this evening again is Philippians 1, verses 18 to 26. I'm actually going to read the second part of verse 18 and on, but this is the text that we're going to unpack tonight. Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain on in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Well, now, I honestly, I haven't looked it up, but I can't remember the last time I was actually up here, what the date was, uh, that I was up here preaching through the book of Philippians. And if I can't remember when it was, I can't expect you to remember what I said. So, uh, by way of briefest uh, reminder, Paul, as he's writing this letter, is in custody in Rome. Um, I will probably use the word jail or prison. That's not quite accurate, but he is imprisoned uh, in the city of Rome writing this letter. The church at Philippi had just sent him a gift of supplies by way of a man named Epaphroditus, and Paul is sending Epaphroditus back with a thank you note to the church, which is what we're processing through tonight. And just before the section that I just read, Paul has given a little bit of a personal update, uh, explaining how he's doing right now uh, as he sits in imprisonment in, in Roman custody. And the short answer is Paul is rejoicing. He is happy. He is glad. And the reason why he is glad is because his imprisonment has led to a, uh, an increased pouring out of the gospel. At the time, we have uh, the Emperor Nero, who is not exactly a friend to Christianity, and it appears that the church in Rome has maybe gone a little silent, has been scared, has been suppressed to a degree. And seeing the apostle in chains has led to the majority of people, majority of Christians in that city, preaching Christ boldly, fearlessly, uh, uh, trusting in the Lord. Now, Not everyone has preached from good motives. Some actually are preaching with a desire to harm Paul in his imprisonment. But Paul is rejoicing nonetheless because Christ is being preached and he's being preached boldly where before there was more silence. 
When we get to our passage and that second part of verse 18, uh, where he says, I will rejoice, Paul transitions from his present circumstances and he begins to look forward. So while he's rejoicing now, the outcome of his imprisonment is not yet decided. He faces one of two potential outcomes. He is either going to be released or he is going to be executed. His fate hasn't been determined, and he is not only facing that eventual outcome, but he is also facing everything leading up to it. He will have plenty of opportunities to shrink back, to be afraid, to try to save his own skin. But Paul, in the text, right after, in fact, by by virtue of the fact that he says, and I will rejoice, Paul is telling us that he doesn't expect to pull a Peter here. He's not going to deny Christ three times. He is confident that he will stand firm to the end. He will be faithful to the end, no matter what the outcome of his imprisonment is. Through the enabling of the Holy Spirit, through the prayers of the churches, he expects Christ to be glorified. He expects to glorify Christ regardless of the outcome. Someone shows up on a Tuesday and says, you're free to go or you're going to the hangman. Either way, Paul is confident that he will stay true to the end, that he will not waver in unbelief, and he will face even death with a Jesus-exalting joy. And that's exactly what he says in verse 20. Let's look at that really quickly together. He says there, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. So that phrase, eager expectation and hope, that's Paul expressing his confidence uh, that I will not at all be ashamed, which is another way of saying that I'm not going to mess this up, that I'm going to, I'm going to stand true. And then he tells us how he could mess it up. He says, but that with full courage, meaning he will, if he, if, he, if he shrinks back in fear, if he shrinks back in unbelief, that's how he could be ashamed, how he could mess things up. But he's confident that he'll have full courage, that now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He's confident that he will have full courage, that he will not shrink back in fear, that regardless of the outcome, Jesus will be glorified in him. And verse 21, when we get to the main verse that we're looking at tonight, and the words, to live is Christ and to die is gain, what verse 21 is really doing is Paul is expressing to us how it is that regardless of the outcome, Jesus will be glorified. Jesus will be glorified whether Paul lives or whether Paul dies because for Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, I say the words for Paul because in verse 21, he says, for me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, which tells us that this phrase is a perspective. It is a way of looking at life and the world. It is a summary of how Paul feels, thinks, chooses, and lives. And so the question that we will be asking ourselves tonight is, um, how is it that Paul is glorified, I'm sorry, that Jesus is glorified if Paul lives or dies? And the answer is, because Paul's perspective can be summarized by, to live as Christ and to die as gain. So then that leads to the next question of, what is this perspective? What is the perspective that Paul has? What does it mean to be able to say to live as Christ and to die is gain? And that is exactly where we're going next. That's the next section. That's the what piece, the the meaning behind those words. And I, I already gave it to you at the beginning. To live as Christ and to die as gain can be summarized really simply as being so in love with Jesus 
that everything that we do in our life is for him. It's through him and it's for him and that we would happily lose everything that we have and anything that we could have because it gets us him. To live is Christ and to die is gain is a perspective on life that is so in love with Jesus that everything that we do is through him and for him and that we would happily part with everything that we have or could have if it means getting him. That's what Paul means here. And to show you where I'm getting that from, um, we're going to look at verses 22 and 23 rather quickly. Um, And it's easiest to see this in the to die is gain part. And so we're going to focus on those words to to show the underlying ethic um, that Paul's talking about here. So look at verses 22 and 23 with me. Um, Because right after verse 21, saying that to live is Christ and to die is gain, in these two verses, Paul begins to tell the church about the conflict in his own soul. He says, if I am meant to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. And so we begin to to see this, this, uh, Paul talking about the two outcomes here. Again, he he can live or he can die. Those are the two outcomes that he's facing. And he tells us in verse 22 what will happen if he lives. If he lives, he is going to uh, throw himself back into service to Jesus. He is going to write and preach and pray and, and, and teach the body of Christ. But in verse 23, after telling us that he's hard-pressed between the two, the, the option of life, he then transitions into this option of death. If he dies, the outcome is that he gets to depart and to be with Christ. And so Paul is staring down these two possible outcomes. And while he doesn't control what they are, he's telling us that inside of his soul that there is a, a little bit of a tussle as to what he would prefer. Um, he, he knows that if he lives, he will serve the church. And if he dies, he gets to go and be with Christ. And he's struggling between which of those two he might want. Now, there is a clear winner. He tells us that my desire is to depart and to be with Christ. That is what he would prefer. And that is exactly why to die is gain. Paul counts death as gain because death means getting to be with Jesus. Death is gain in our passage uh, refers then to when someone is so in love with Jesus that he would happily leave behind everything he has to get to go and be with Jesus. And I want to pause there for a quick second and maybe beat a horse a little tiny bit because it's really important to see that death is gain uh, cannot mean uh, uh, any reason why we might prefer death over life. And there are a number of reasons why someone might prefer death over life, and you can kind of bucketize them. There's, there's avoidance reasons, and then there's positive reasons. Um, on the avoidance category, we might say death is gain because we are, are in excruciating mental or emotional pain. And you think about what Paul suffered, all the beatings and stonings and everything he went through, he probably had some ongoing problems uh, that, 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 that were debilitating. Um, he, uh, in Second Corinthians, when he says the outer shell is wasting away, that probably was literal. The guy is probably not in the best of places physically. Um, he may, you know, death may be gained for Paul because it gets him out of a broken body. 
Um, death may be gained for someone because they are desperately missing a loved one and they, they want to go see that person. Um, you know, death may even be gained to someone because they're, they're, they're weighted down with, with sin and consequence and they want to avoid or, or, or be rid of those sorts of things. There are reasons why on the avoidance category someone might say death is gain. There's even positive reasons, again, why someone might say death is gain. We talked this morning in equipping hour about some of the promises in the, the, the Bible that we get to inherit and how many of those kind of point us to what happens when Jesus comes back and the kingdom is inaugurated. Personally, I hate this body of sin and death that I currently inhabit. I hate the, the, the conflict that is here inside me where I want to do the right thing, but with it there is a desire and a temptation to do the wrong thing. I'm very much looking forward to that going away. And in that sense, death is absolutely gain because it goes away, because that conflict is resolved. I never have to struggle again with uh, uh, the choice between righteousness and sin. The Apostle Paul is certainly, I think it's fair to say, he's got a few rewards stored up for him in heaven. Um, And so he could absolutely, rightly, be looking forward to all the blessings that he will receive through Christ and the service that God worked through him. But regardless of valid reasons why death might be gain for someone, that's not what Paul has in mind here. Paul's very clear. Death is gain not because he's trying to avoid something or some pain or problem, not because he's looking forward to uh, blessings or promises. Death is gain because he gets to go and be with Jesus. This is about a person. This is about loving Christ so much, again, that you're willing to give up everything that you have and everything that you might have because you get to go and be with him. Not his rewards, not his blessings, him. Again, that's not to say that it's wrong to look forward to any of those things. It's not wrong to say that there are valid reasons why death might be gained, but in our passage, the life that glorifies God, the life that glorifies Jesus that Paul is talking about, is a life that counts death gain because You get to go and be with Jesus because you love him more than anything you might have in this world. That is what to die is gain means in verse 21. And that same ethic underlines what it means to live as Christ. In that same couple of verses that we read uh, just a second ago, Paul tells us what it means that if the outcome is life, what he's going to end up doing. In uh, verse 22, it meant fruitful labor. He says later on in verse 25 that he would, again, work for the progress and joy in the faith of the body of Christ. And so in other words, if Paul lives, he's going to throw himself into serving Christ and to serving his body. And so taking that ethic from to die is gain and applying it here, to live as Christ simply means to be so in love with Jesus that he's our North Star, that everything that we do is through him and for him. This isn't a uh, you know, general declaration to live as Christ is, is not the same thing as saying, you know, Jesus is my Lord. Um, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is more than that. This is someone who is so in love with Christ that the decisions he makes, the priority he has, the focuses that he has, it's all about his beloved. This is someone who loves his Savior and lives for his Savior. This is a perspective that is chiefly concerned because you love your Savior for his glory. I mean, just look at how many times in our text Paul talks about seeing Jesus glorified and desiring to see Jesus glorified. This is a perspective that treasures Jesus above all else. 
If death is gain, that means that anything that Paul had or would have is secondary and less than the benefit of being with Christ. It's also a perspective that is passionately about, because of loving Christ, the mission that Christ is about. Paul's going to pour himself into the service of the church. Why? Because that's the mission that his beloved is undertaking in the world. It's the mission that he came to start, and it's the mission that he is currently working at the right hand of God. Paul loves his Savior so much that he loves the mission of his Savior. To live as Christ and to die as gain is a summary of a perspective on life in which out of love for him, Jesus is our everything. That's what those words mean. Now, pausing here also for a second, I've, over the years, heard sermons like this, where someone talks about this particular phrase, and I think I've had a half dozen different reactions to it. Um, I, and so, you know, I've, I've, it's run the emotional gamut. I've sat here and thought to myself, yeah, it's pretty much me. I've got that. I was wrong. It's a dangerous, dangerous place to be if there's anyone in this uh, church right now who feels that way. I've also felt frustration, anger even. This is, this is too high a bar. You know, how, how, this can't be right. Um, there, there's no way I can attain this. I've also felt despair because it's too high a bar. There's no way I can attain this. Um, I've also felt sorrow because I'm not here. Uh, I, you know, I, can't, I can't say with the same sincerity and earnestness of Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain. And so having gone through that myself, I just want to let everybody be reassured and reminded this is not binary. It's not like you can say to live as Christ and to die as gain or you hate Jesus. There, there's, there's, there's stuff in between those two things. This is something that we should be able to say to one degree but also need to continuously make progress in. Every believer in Christ should be able to say with some degree of earnestness and sincerity to live as Christ and to die as gain. And every believer in Christ should be able to pray, Lord, make that truer tomorrow than it was today. We shouldn't get frustrated. We shouldn't despair. We shouldn't lose hope. And we certainly, certainly shouldn't think that we've achieved what Paul is talking about here. Instead, we should make these words our personal mottos, our daily goal. We should aim every day at going to bed saying that we love and treasure Jesus at least a little bit more than we did the day before. And, of course, if that is our goal, if our goal is to be able to say ever increasingly so, to live as Christ and to die as gain, that obviously does beg the question, doesn't it? How do we do that? How does one ever increasingly say that with sincerity and earnestness? And I am going to give you what will absolutely seem like a cop-out answer. And that is simple. You just love Jesus more. If you just love Jesus more, I promise you to live as Christ and die as gain will be the thing that uh, you, know, you, can, you can ever more increasingly say. And I know that sounds like a terrible letdown answer, and I promise I'm going to say more words. But I, I want to start there as we talk about application because just like I've had a, a variety of experiences with this text, I've also made a variety of mistakes in applying it. So, um, you know, for example, 
and I, I imagine this is going to resonate with most folks, but over the years, when you read the book of Acts or you read through Paul's letters, you get a picture of a man who really is sold out for Jesus, not just because of things like this, but how he talks about his prayer life and evangelism and his care for the churches. You, you see someone in practice who loves Jesus Christ and who loves his church. And when I've seen that, I have thought to myself, man, you know, Paul's a guy who prays a lot and prays passionately. There's, there's a deficiency in my prayer life, and I've resolved to do better at that. Or I read about Paul's boldness and fearlessness in evangelism, and I thought to myself, you know, I can't work up the courage sometimes to talk to the person who's cutting my hair about Christ. Like, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta fix that, and so I resolve to do better. Or, um, you know, in terms of uh, passion for other believers, you know, I sit down on Sunday morning and I sit in my chair and it's, it's easy to sort of just grab a quick cup of coffee and sit there and not talk to people. I got to do better. I got I to gotta talk to more people. I got to invite people over for a meal. And, you know, I, I resolve to do better. And like the average American New Year's resolution, I do really good for a little bit. And then by March or so, it, it, it ends. Um, I never quite attain to the level that I see in Paul. There's no staying power. Um, it's not like I, you know, completely give up, but it's, 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 there's, just, there's something lacking. And ultimately, the reason is what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to mimic the result without paying attention to the cause. Paul's prayer life, his love for people, his boldness in preaching Christ, the things that we see in our text tonight, these aren't natural talents or acts of will. They all flow from a heart that loves Christ. G- Paul loves Jesus and so preaches him enthusiastically. Paul loves Christ and so he loves Christ's body. Paul loves Christ and so communes with him in prayer frequently. And so what I've missed for so long is that if I want to match Paul's activity, I also have to match Paul's motivation. That's, that's where the staying power comes from. And so in other words, if we, if we really want to follow in Paul's footsteps, if we want to increasingly be able to say to live as Christ and to die as gain, we really do have to make it a point to focus not so much on copying the things that Paul does as a result of loving Christ, but to make it our mission to ever increasingly grow in our love for Jesus. We need to understand that everything that Paul does, does, did, flowed from a deep, sincere, passionate love for Jesus. There's no, there's no tricks. There's no special gimmicks. There's no shortcuts. We want to live like Paul. We need to love like Paul. And that's why you know, the primary application point is to, to increase in our love for our Savior because it's so easy to kind of focus on the right things to do or the right things to think and sort of miss that basic fundamental point. It's all about loving the one who loved us and died for us. And in fact, if I were to be so bold as to boil down the secret to Paul's love for Christ, it's there in that sentence. Paul never outgrew the gospel. Paul never outgrew the gospel. Like many of us, I can look back at my conversion at a time in which immediately after, I, 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 had, I had indescribable joy and zeal for Christ. And when I think about why that was, because, and, and I think the answer is pretty clear. Right before, right before trusting in Christ for the first time, I knew, I knew, in my bones, knew that I was condemned. That apart from, you know, I didn't realize at the time, but apart from Christ, that I had no hope. I knew 
the wrath that I deserved. I knew who I was. And it terrified me. It horrified me. There was that utter despair so that when Jesus came, when there was the gospel, when there was that, that good news, everything changed in a moment. And there was, there was indescribable joy and there was indescribable gratitude to Christ over it. But it's, it's so easy, as, as I'm sure many of us know, to, to move beyond that, I'm putting that in air quotes, to move beyond that, to move past the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel to, to other things, the bigger things. But when you read Paul's letters, this is the man who never, ever, ever made that mistake. The gospel was never old hat. It was never passe. It was never the thing he moved on from. It was always the thing that he was constantly astonished by and wanted others to be astonished by. There's no, there's no 10-step program for loving Jesus. There's no, there's no secret sauce. Our love for Christ will always be proportional to how well we know ourselves and the wrath that apart from Christ we deserved, what Jesus did to fix that problem, and how great his love was in doing so. It's not more complicated than that. If we want to grow in our love for Christ, we start by knowing who we are apart from Christ, which are the vile, horrible, rebellious sinner. Someone who deserves, and it's easy to sort of gloss over these words, but who deserves an eternity of constant, endless wrath. Think about it this way. If, if Adam was condemned for eating a piece of fruit, or to put that more biblically, if the least sin deserves an eternity in hell, what do you and I deserve for a life of enthusiastic, wanton sin? I love, I love Romans 1 and 2. It's a fantastic place to go if you're evangelizing someone but in Romans 1, starting in verse 29, Paul gives this laundry list of sins that characterize mankind. And every single one of us should be able to find ourselves in just about every single word in this passage. And I'm going to read it, but I'm also going to focus on verse 32. In Romans 1, verses 29, Paul, and I'm going to, I'm going to get rid of the they's, and I'm going to start talking about us. We were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. We were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. We were gossips. We were slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, heartless ruthless. And although we knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, we not only did them, but we gave approval to those who practice them. That's you. That's me. That's us. We need to own these things. We need to feel these things. We need to not skip over who we are apart from Christ. And we need to especially not skip over verse 32 there. Now, I'll read that again. Even though we knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, we not only did them, but we gave hearty approval to those who practice them. Brothers and sisters, we weren't accidental sinners. We weren't people who didn't know better or people who made mistakes. We knew. We knew. We knew right from wrong. 
And we not only did the wrong thing, we delighted in them. And we delighted in them so much that we encouraged others to do the same. And in John 3.19, Jesus is explaining in part why people do not come to God. And he says, the light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So if you were like me, someone who heard the gospel at 14 and 16 and rejected it at 22, or I'm sorry, rejected it until 22, it's, it's, it's not because uh, I needed better information or a more cogent uh, presentation of the gospel. It's because I hated the light and I loved what I was doing. There was no innocence there. That's who you were. That's who I was. So going back to the question of what we deserve, given who we were and how enthusiastically we sinned, what do we deserve? Apart from Christ, what is the price that God's justice ought to demand from you and I? And the answer is it ain't small. It's not small. And that is, understanding that is, a, is precisely the reality that helps us think, see the unthinkable glory of what Jesus did for us. Because all of that evil, every act of depravity and rebellion was laid on him. He suffered for every sinful word that we have ever spoken. All the wrath that we hopefully just admitted we deserved, he bore. And he did it because he loved us. He did it because he loved us. And, and, and so easy to gloss over that, but let's not miss the unfathomable reality of that sentence. He did it because he loved us. And that is nuts. That's nuts. That's completely crazy. Because by right, if we're talking about what is just and right and appropriate, he should have hated us. He should have hated us. It would have been right and just for him to have hated us, to regard us as rebels, as traitors, as enemies. To paraphrase R.C. Sproul as specks of dusts that dared rebel against their creator. Romans 5, we're called the enemies of God. Christ died when we were his enemies. And yet, he loved us enough to die for us and suffer in our place. He did everything necessary to reconcile us to God when we were in active rebellion against him. That's how much he loved us. And when we see those things, and this is just obviously a small snippet, but when we see the reality and the horror of our sin, when we see how enthusiastically we've thrown ourselves into it, we see what it took for him to remove that stain and that guilt from us and the unfathomable character of his love for us, when we see that daily, keeping that in front of our faces, we can't help but love him. We can't help, I think, but to feel the sort of love that could say ever more sincerely, ever more earnestly, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And so yes, our, our job is to love Jesus more. If we want to be able to make that motto truer in our life, loving Christ is the goal, and keeping the gospel in front of our faces is the primary means of doing that. Now, as we 
conclude tonight, I realize it would be great to have more time to talk about some of the practical mechanics of, of, of certain things. Um, you know, it, it, there, there's a lot that we could say in terms of just encouraging practical wisdom about how to keep the gospel in front of our eyes, the sorts of things that can make us lose sight of the gospel, those sorts of little legalistic errors that can creep in. We could say a lot on the subject. Um, but I do want to end just on one practical, hopefully helpful note. And no, it is not communion related. Tim or Greg can pluck that low hanging fruit when they come up here. But there is one thing I think that is, is sort of just a helpful reminder for us. And it's not something we talk about a whole lot, but, but in terms of the context of loving Jesus all the more, I think it helps if we think of it as analogous to falling in love with another person. As I look around the room tonight, I see quite a few married couples or folks who were married at one point in time, and so this probably should resonate. But the mechanics of how you fall in love with another human being and loving Jesus all the more, they're not super different. There are differences. There are differences. But the process is largely the same. I mean, think about the, how, how you fall in love with someone. You, you do that certainly by spending time with them hanging out, going on dates, doing activities, whatever. But your, your relationships develop over time and in the presence of someone else. It involves getting to know someone. You, you know, if you're married, you, at some point you spoke with your spouse. Uh, you, you learned their likes, their dislikes, their viewpoints on things. You watched how they lived their lives. You got to know them and you loved them as you did. And it certainly also involves experiencing them. You, you, you did things for them, they did things for you, you exchanged gifts at some point in time, maybe you were sick, they took care of you, uh, uh, maybe they, they corrected you or, 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 or encouraged you in some way. But there was an experience of the other person. And those three things are sort of the essential sauce of, of, of being able to love another human being. In the same way, they apply to our relationship with Jesus. No, we don't have a Friday night date night with Jesus. But we nonetheless spend time with him, talking with him in prayer. We get to know him through reading about him in the word. And we experience him through his shepherding care for us, his providential decrees in our lives, and through our life together as the body of Christ, which is the, the, the manifestation of Christ on this earth. Our, our body life here is part of experiencing Jesus. It's really the same process, just slightly different circumstances. And I think if we, if we think about those things, time in the word, prayer, body life, not in the context of a list of one another's to do or a checklist to accomplish or duties to follow or beneficial practices or spiritual disciplines, but we think about them in terms of means by which we can get to know and ever deepen our love for our Savior, they become richer they become something that is less of a burden and more of a blessing and an opportunity. So I would leave you with that thought tonight. Think about what you do as a Christian. If you want to be able to say evermore to live as Christ and die as gain, think about it always in the lens of ever loving a person, ever loving your Savior who loved you and died for you. With that, let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you again for this opportunity tonight to open up this passage and reflect on these words.
Lord, I, I pray that you would write to live as Christ and to die as gain on every one of our minds that we may think about our beloved as we, as we go about our day. I pray that you would write it on our hearts that we would not just realize truths, but that we would feel them, that we would have the courage and the grace to not shy away from the reality of our sin and its heinousness so that we might not diminish the glory of your love and the salvation that you provided in Christ. I pray that you write these things on our tongues, Lord, that we may speak about them in our families and in this body and to those who do not know you, that in everything we might be people who are sold out for Christ, that out of love for him, he truly is our everything. And we ask you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.